Are you chasing happiness but feel like you keep coming up short? Wishing you could experience more joy in your life? Want to have more fun with your kids? On this episode of Brainy Moms, Terry and I interview Dr. Mike Rucker, an organizational psychologist who specializes in the research of fun. That's right, F-U-N, fun. Dr. Rucker tells us that pursuing happiness might not be the right goal. He shares a ton of research on happiness, joy, and fun. It's a mindset changer. Join us. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Brainy Moms, brought to you today by LearningRx Brain Training Centers. I'm Dr. Amy Moore, your host, here with my co-host, Terry Miller, coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. We are excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Mike Rucker. Dr. Mike is an organizational psychologist, a behavioral scientist, and charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association. Not only has his research on fun been published in scientific journals, his ideas about fun and health have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Forbes, Mind, Body, Green, and more. He currently serves as senior leader at Active Wellness and is the author of the upcoming book, The Fun Habit, available next January, 2023. So glad to have you with us, Mike. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. So I want you to tell our listeners just real briefly your story and what brought you to the point of being a fun researcher where you are today. Sure. So um, as you guys mentioned, I'm a charter member of the IPPA. And so, you know, um, when that got established, uh, Cheek Sent Me High and Marty Seglman were really bringing forth all these ideas around 2005. There was this big movement, right? And happiness as a construct really became popular with a lot of folks, not just psychologists, but um, life coaches. And, you know, I think that's still prevalent today. And I certainly was a believer and still am. I I still value happiness. Um, And those tools really served me well for about a decade. Uh, You know, I was also in the quantified self movement at the time. And so not only was I looking at it from a psychological standpoint, but like logging my happy days, looking for correlations, like really trying to over-optimize my life, right? And I can say that now with the hindsight of 2020, but at the time it felt cool because we're, you know, I was climbing this peak. And um, but to make a long story short, in 2016, I had uh, um, a few pieces of unfortunate things happen. Um, one, I lost my younger brother um, quite suddenly. He uh, passed away from a pulmonary embolism. Um, and I had been an endurance athlete up to that point. And so to mitigate stress, primarily what I would do was run. And I found out right after my brother's passing that um, quite suddenly I had, uh, um, or news to me was that I had advanced osteoarthritis. It really hadn't affected me. Um, but then all of a sudden my hips started hurting. And um, after getting an MRI, uh, I found out that my femoral head was sitting on my pelvis and I wasn't going to be able to run, you know, competitively again. And so you know, this big life event. And, um, and then also the primary way that I used to mitigate stress was taken away from me. And so, but I still had all these tools of positive psychology and I definitely had a concern of maintaining, you know, this happiness state. I just had my second child um, and I was a believer in these tools. Um, But to make a long story short, during that time, I found the more that I chased happiness and tried to hold on to it, it was actually making me less happy. Um, and serendipitous uh, at that time, 
uh, a bunch of different researchers were looking at the way, um, especially folks in the West, um, have an overly, uh, are overly concerned with happiness. And so I started swimming from that research. Um, one of the big folks that I follow in this area is Dr. Iris Mouse out of uh, Cal, but there are a whole host of others, you know, certainly a lot out of Penn too. Um, and so during that time, there was a big research gap. And so like any good researcher, right, when you find this type of gap um, and it's affecting you, you tend to swim in it. So I lived in PubMed, or excuse me, <laughs> PubMed, and um, really started to, you know, align with the practitioners and researchers um, dwelling into this area. And so, uh, and so Sonia Lubomirsky is another one out of UC Riverside. Um, there were all there were these emerging studies coming out that a lot of what we believed to be true and a lot of what was getting uh, consumed from academia, but sort of overprescribed, you know, in a general sense, were actually doing harm, right? Like, so one of the prevailing ideas during that time was, you know, you need to find something to be grateful for three times a day. And we know that gratitude is an amazing tool. So I'm not here to villainize it. Um, but what was really interesting is, you know, um, Lubomirsky and others found that folks that felt like that was a sense of duty that they had to, to you know, to do this activity were actually making themselves less happy. Um, and so I had this awakening, right? Like all of these things that were sort of part of my identity because I wanted to be a happy person were actually working against me. And so if that was the case, you know, there had to be a better way, right? Especially for someone that was in a temporary state of, of malaise or melancholy, um, you know, because obviously a lot of these tools aren't meant if you have a biological or clinical disposition to depression, you know, I'm certainly not telling you that you can fund your way out of it, right? I always try to make that clear. But if you're going through a tough spot, um, you you can have an action orientation to go find and invite joy and delight into your life and start to index these pleasurable experiences that lift you out. Um, and what I found is that as an adult, it's really hard to take that extra step. We all sort of know this, but because of hustle culture and, you know, sort of um, systemic Puritan work ethic, it's really hard, you know, especially for um, parents, especially, you know, that feel this sort of dutiful sense for your kids. Terry, I know you have nine children, right? So like <laughs> I, I loved in your bio, you know, this idea that, you know, escapism for you might be binge watching Netflix. and the thing is, escapism isn't necessarily bad, right, if you're doing it in a manner um, that's healthy. And so I think that's really the crux is that um, when we do find these areas where we're either lonely or bored or burned out, that if you just, you know, use a little bit of mindfulness and take an action-oriented approach, you can start to have fun. So in that sense, fun is, you know, as a distinction to happiness, which, you know, as psychologists, we define as subjective well-being, which is sort of a lagging indicator that if we just take a little bit off the table for ourselves and are a little bit more mindful of how we're spending the 168 hours in our week, we can actually generally pull ourselves out of temporary states of malaise. And I think, you know, even though it's not, you know, this profound thing that I've discovered, it is something where you sort of need to rattle people's cages. Like, wait a second. Yeah. Okay. And now there have been some really, really interesting studies that have backed it up. So it's been a really fun journey. So that's a long story short. I, I hope I answered your question. Yeah, absolutely. So let's rattle some cages then. And yes. like, let's really dig into the difference between happiness and fun. Yeah. So 
you know, happiness as we describe it is an emotional state, right? And again, it generally takes introspection to get there, especially as we define it as psychologists. So, you know, uh, again, sometimes it's described as subjective well-being, and those are often, um, you know, a battery of instruments where we you take a survey and we sort of, you know, how are you feeling about your, you know, wealth and your physical well-being and your relationships with friends, and so that's something that you're kind of looking at in the rearview mirror, and even in steady in, in in a present state, you kind of have to take it and be like, hey, am I happy? We were being mindful of having the fun that we are in, right? And so, yeah, um, yeah so happiness is this, uh, you know, it's still great to be happy, but often when we think about it, right, is when it becomes problematic. And so, again, want to make clear the distinction that valuing happiness and wanting to live a happy life is fine. But when we get overly concerned and start thinking about it, um, is when there's problems, right? And so the simplest way to sort of look at that academically, and this has been empirically validated, is that when we're sort of concerned about happiness, we tend to think about the gap between where we are today and where we want to be, right? And if that is pervasive, what ends up happening is it bleeds into our identity, right? Like So you constantly think about that gap, um, and then you're like, oh, well, I must not be a happy person because every time I think about my own happiness, um, I'm not where I want to be. And therefore, you know, how can I identify as happy? Where when you ha- take a fun approach and sort of approach the activities that you find pleasure in more mindfully, you can start to celebrate your gains, right? You start to index all of these kind of interesting things. And you also understand that you have agency and autonomy over your life, which tends to be a nice upward spiral, right? Because you're taking control over how you spend some of your time. Um, and once you do that, it's sort of a learned skill, right? And so um, this is really, you know, this can be a skill that you develop over time. The problem again with adults is that um, there we're just not scheduling enough of this in our lives, right? So this research comes from Dr. Cassie Holmes out of UCLA, who looked at um, how Americans are spending their leisure. And she found that, uh, you know, a lot for a lot of folks, we're not spending any of it, right? In fact, if you look at um, uh, uh, paid PTO in the Western world, we tend to be in the bottom 5%. Uh, I think huh. we're like tied with Thailand, right? You, most of us get on average two weeks per year. And wow. even worse is that we're not using it, right? It's such a problem right now that Fortune 500 companies are actually incentivizing people to take their vacation. I mean, so that's a real problem. Um, And what we know is that when people aren't indexing pleasurable experiences and having fun in their lives, really bad um, things happen to their personal well-being, right? Obviously, physically, they start to break down because their limbic system is always um, in in overdrive, right? Because everything seems like a crisis. You're always kind of living in your to-do list. And now, you know, that we live in a world of heuristic work and not algorithmic work, our to-do lists are never ending, right? So that's a -a whack-a-mole that just never stops, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, But when we're not taking a little bit off the table for ourselves, our productivity also goes down. So it's not just physical well-being. It's that we start to produce less. And so paradoxically, we're actually getting less done when we overprescribe ourselves to work. And so what Dr. Holmes found is that the kind of Goldilocks spot for feeling like, you know, at least you're living a joyful life is two hours of leisure per day, which when you think about it, isn't a lot, right? That's only 14 hours out of your 168. 
but a lot of us aren't doing that. Right. Yeah. That seems like a lot. I think, I think most people would say two hours of leisure a day seems like a lot, like for a busy parent. I mean, keep going, but I'm thinking, yeah, that ain't happening. (laughs) So, but the thing is like, when you're not, when you're not mindful of trying to figure out what that means for you. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to stop parenting, right? Like, so we could, I know in the second half, we're going to get into that a little bit, but um, you, you know, you can use techniques to still be a parent and find pleasurable things for you to do either with your children or your partner um, or find pleasurable ways to engage with work. I would posit that that's what you two have done with this podcast, right? I mean, this is still work, but I can tell you guys are having a boatload of fun. That's yeah. probably why you kept it up, right? Hey, don't tell our boss that on air. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. But you know what? My The sign I put on my door that says we're actually recording, like it says Brainy Mom's recording. And then it says, I, I have something like, is it really work if I'm having this much fun? Because <laughs> it's true. Yes. Go ahead. No, but I think that's right. Because, you know, for a lot of folks, for a whole host of reasons, and right, because it runs the gamut, we have to, you know, it's hard to dig into one case because people will be like, well, that doesn't pertain to me. I get it. You know, uh, the way, we, you know, um, parenting styles and, and problematic work issues, especially after the pandemic, um, are as specific to the person. But generally, when you peel back the onion, you can find ways to improve your situation, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, it can be as provocative as leaving your job, but like, obviously that, you, that comes from a p- place of privilege. Some people can't, but most people can find a way to at least improve a few hours in their day, even if, you know, they're in a tough spot. And so, um, and then, you know, non-work related, if you're um, engaged, you know, in something like, you know, I was with loss or, you know, potentially a divorce or whatever, even if you're in that state and you're not, um, you know, so that there's a lot of things where emotionally you don't feel connected to joy, you still have the opportunity to go and have fun, right? Like connecting with a friend, you know, and, and going to the movies or, um, you know, whatever activity lights you up, if it's solitary fun, you know, re-engaging with something you weren't able to do, um, you know, again, indexing those things we know it, it is able to bring you back up, even if you don't necessarily, you know, feel happy in that moment. And then one other thing I'd like to highlight is that we know that when you're not having fun, you tend not to do the hard stuff because there's a lot of friction with regards to, you tend to keep yourself more busy. So there's a great study out of MIT, Stanford and Harvard um, that looked at this. And so it it was a big study, 28,000 different participants, and um, they used um, a pager to check in on people that were, you know, what activity they were doing and how they were feeling about it. And what we've talked about um, with regards to folks that are coping with something, um, their hypothesis held true, right? When we're coping with something really hard, we tend to uh, find activities for pleasure that allow us to escape, right? And sometimes those are unhealthy. Um, Some folks are able to escape in healthy ways like exercise and things of that nature. But the folks that were kind of in that Goldilocks spot and really did take time off the table for themselves, um, and even again, if that's in partnership with other folks like their kids and and their parents, or excuse me, you know, their partner, um, they go and find the harder stuff to do. So, you know, when they have a little bit of time, they have the resilience to do more creative work or go find harder challenges or just do stuff that is uh, for their own betterment. 
because their fun cup is already full, right? Like if we're not finding any joy at all, then we don't do that kind of harder, fun stuff that leads to betterment and, and peak experiences. Instead, we just want to relieve the discomfort that we're feeling in that moment. And so again, another reason why this stuff is so important. So I want to I want to recap a little bit because you just made a couple of really good points, right? So, like there was some big stuff right. in there. <laughs> All right. So um, what you're saying is when we're chasing the goal of being happy, then we notice the gap between where we are now and where we want to be. And so then in that gap is where we can start ruminating on all the things that are going wrong in our life or what we don't have or what our neighbor has that we wish we could have or the the whole woe is me. There's I mean, there's a space there that we sit in between Mm -hmm. where we where we are now and where we want to be. Right. And so you're saying if we I think you call it um, having a bias toward fun. So. If we have a mindset that there's something that we can choose to do today that's fun, that brings us joy, the more we stack those up in our lives, the closer we not only come to meeting our goal of being happy, but that produces the happiness all by itself. That's right. And so, and the, the best part of that is all you're doing is exchanging that energy, right? So another thing that I think folks take for granted is what you just described, you know, sort of perseverating on a situation that's hard to change. Um, you're, you, that's time and energy. And so all you have to do is refocus that energy on things that you want to do. And it's just that subtle, it's not even a reframe, right? It's really just a shift. Yes. Being able to move that energy into understanding that you have autonomy and agency um, over at least some things. Um, really is again an additive, um, you know, function of human behavior, but it's hard to get there um, because we have also, you know, this research comes from Timothy Wilson out of University of Virginia, but it's it, there's a component of human nature where it's hard to prioritize pleasurable experiences because we undervalue what what we think they'll bring to our lives. Right? Again, it comes from that sense of duty and likely because you know, whether you believe in evolution or not, like this idea that, um, you know, in prior times, our safety generally was, you know, being attacked, right? And so like, um, to sit around and, and, um, uh, you know, think about pleasure could potentially put you in harm's way, but we're in a, in a very different place now, right? And so whether you believe that to be true or not, it has been validated that it takes practice to, um, to value, you know, sort of pleasurable activities and pleasurable thought. But as soon as you do, it's an easily learned skill because all of a sudden you realize that you are producing more. Again, people tend to get um, more creative. We know it fills us up. Um, Certainly after the pandemic, um, loneliness has been studied as a construct that really is affecting um, physical well-being as well. If you believe the studies, it's as bad as sitting and smoking. Um, and so fun is another great elixir, especially fun with friends that, um, you know, is able to uh, combat the loneliness, uh, you know, loneliness problem right now. Okay. Right. And this has a therapeutic aspect to it, too. I mean, I know in therapy with depressed clients, I mean, it's behavioral activation, right? Like you, you have to choose something on your happy list. Mm-hmm. Right. And even though you don't want to do it when you do it, then you're going to experience some joy. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yep. 
Well, I think it's, I think also it's so important to realize that we're going to, as a, as a parent, as a human race, whatever, as a human, we are going to soothe our suffering, our boredom, our apathy, whatever. We are going to find ways to soothe. And I think like, especially during COVID, you know, what we've heard so much about is there was this incredible rise in um, people, you know, eating too much, drinking too much, you know, alcoholism, um, sex, you know, I mean, just all the things that people do to kind of medicate or soothe you know, just the hardship of life. And I think what you're saying is if we can shift that instead of, instead of I'm just going to soothe or comfort or, or numb or medicate or whatever. And instead I can fill that sort of need, physiological need that we all have. Instead, I can intentionally pursue fun, different word, different concept. Is that what I'm hearing also? You're spot on. So oftentimes, you know, one of the first assessments I'll have somebody do is a time audit, right? Because, you know, it's pretty easy to um, mindfully understand how you're spending 168 hours. And so, um, you know, just being mindful of those activities, right? So, you know, when we talk about fun in an academic sense, it's really just positive balance, right? Anything on the positive side of balance is pleasurable, which really is just fun. And anything on the negative side, you know, is not fun, right? And so what are we doing that puts us in a positive valence state? And once you sort of understand how you're spending your time in this particular scenario that you're describing, you can look at, wait, you know, is drinking every Friday night you know, is, is this an activity of convenience that I think is fun, but really isn't? It's really just displacing discomfort. Right. Um, and if so, could I replace it with something um, that's more fulfilling and, and um, you know, better for better, my own betterment? And again, once you start making that subtle shift, it's so additive, right? I mean, there really is this compound effect where, um, you know, unless you, you know, have a predisposition to addiction or, you know, again, a, a clinical issue, you know, once you oh wow, okay, yeah, this just feels a lot better. Um, and you know, again, I can't wait to when we start getting into it with regards to parenting. But like those subtle shifts have such an impact with kids, right? Where um, people are, you know, feel the sense of duty to parenting, and they find like, wait, why am I sitting in the park just scrolling Instagram, where I don't even really like Instagram, and just letting my kid do what they want when it really could be an activity that, you know, is pleasurable for both of us. If I just was a little bit more mindful of how we're spending this hour, you know? So, so I think that's a great segue. Um, We're going to take a break and let Terry read a word from our sponsor. And when we come back, let's talk about the application of this to parenting. Mm -hmm. Are you concerned about your child's reading or spelling performance? Are you worried your child's reading curriculum isn't thorough enough? Well, most learning struggles aren't the results of poor curriculum or instruction. They're typically caused by having cognitive skills that need to be strengthened. Skills like auditory processing, memory, and processing speed. Learning RX one-on-one brain training programs are designed to target and strengthen the skills that we rely on for reading, spelling, writing, and learning. Learning RX can help you identify which skills may be keeping your child from performing their best. In fact, 
They've worked with more than 100,000 children and adults who wanted to think and perform better. They'd like to help get your child on the path to a brighter and more confident future. Give LearningRx a call at 866-BRAIN-01 or visit learningrx.com. That's learningrx.com. And we're back talking to Dr. Mike Rucker, who is an organizational psychologist and behavioral scientist that studies and specializes in fun. And so, um, Mike, talk to us about the application of all that you found in your in this research, and it's amazing research, um, to parenting. Yeah, so I think um, where it's been uh, the most interesting is uh, really allowing, you know, it comes from transactional analysis, which I imagine both of you guys know well. And um, really this thought that we as adults don't allow ourselves to be in that childlike state enough, especially in the Western world, right? And so in my own research, what I found that I think um, was interesting and then replicated um, by some researchers um, out of the University of Texas is this idea that oftentimes when we're engaged in play with our children, especially if it's meant to be restorative. So again, sort of the asterisks where I'm not suggesting that we don't be parents and that we don't you know, need to be adults, but that oftentimes that we go in and when play is prescriptive, we're not allowing us to enjoy those full, those moments with our kids. We're not really having fun. You know, we're in that adult or that parent role. Um, and when we're doing that, um, oftentimes we're sucking out the fun from our kids too, right? So there are times where things are meant to be instructive and we're meant to teach, right? But if we're in an environment where the whole idea is for everyone to have fun, allowing yourself to be led by your kids, because kids can be some of the best teachers, right? Um, will has a whole host of benefits. And um, so what I did and where this insight kind of came from was initially, I just wanted to look at um, as a behavioral scientist, how our environments um, had an effect on having fun. So I, uh, here in the Carolinas, went to a bunch of uh, children museums where there were these um, experiential play centers. And so I was watching the behavior of both children and adults. And what was so neat is kids would run into these rooms, right? They always had like blocks and certain things you could build with. And they would start immediately figuring out like what they were going to do, right? Um, and nine times out of 10, the adults would sit there, kind of start to stutter step towards the back of the wall, completely frozen, not knowing what to do, right? Um, because as adults, and, and this is, there's a good reason for this, right? But we need bumper rails. We, you know, in, in psychology, we call them heuristics, right? Um, we need the a set of instructions because we have so much incoming information coming at us at all times, but it has really impeded our ability to have fun during, you know, playful exchanges with our kids because we're waiting around for instructions. And so what would happen is inevitably they had to ask, you know, someone at the, at the play museum, you know, what do I need to do? you know, and they would get the simple instructions. And then all of a sudden, you know, it was this license to, to be able to play. And oftentimes they would have more fun than they would with their kids, right? And so the insight I sort of gleaned from this research is that, um, you know, just being sort of mindful of that, you know, having, uh, if you truly are in an environment where you want to, um, you know, co-create these fun experiences as a parent, uh, making sure that you stay in that childlike state. Um, and the easiest way to do that is letting your your kid lead as long as there isn't, 
you know, where, where you do need to course correct, like, you know, there are going to be times where danger or, you know, something provocative that, you know, you want it to be a learning moment. But if it's not, don't lead and guide, let them explain to you, you know, uh, what it is that you're supposed to be doing in this play environment. Um, and when you allow yourself to do that, you start to, you know, flex those old muscles that you used to have. Um, creativity goes way up. Uh, nonlinear thinking goes way up. And it's just got this whole host of benefits. And um, in hindsight, when you, you check in with yourself, you'll realize that you had a lot more fun too. And then kind of the, you know, the added bonus to that is that the kids have a lot more fun too. So what we found is that in that state, as soon as you start to be a parent, the kid oftentimes will be like, oh, this is meant to be a learning um, activity, not a fun activity. So, you know, they'll sit around and kind of wait for instruction. And so you're kind of sucking the, the fun from them as well. Um, and so, yeah, that's <laughs> Well, I want to I want to kind of toss in there. This is not disagreeing with what you're saying at yeah. all, but I just want to kind of say and sure, sure. Um, with having had lot, I have nine kids, having had lots of children, where I've had lots of opportunities to interact with playtime with them um, early on. So I, I'm thinking like a mom of of young kids. Early on, I used to really torture myself um, thinking that I was supposed to play with my kids in the thing they were doing. And okay, so like, for example, um, my my first three kids, my oldest three, you know, at home, uh, they would do this thing. They called it the herd. And they had um, sometimes there were Barbies in it, stuffed animals because I had a boy and two girls dinosaurs, uh, horses, you know, like collectible horses. And they would create like all through the house, like this herd and the herd would migrate and different adventures would happen to it. And storms would come and, you know, whatever, all these wonderful things. And they would want me to play with them. And I hated it. I was like, not into the herd. I just would, I would be like, okay, this is so fun. Mommy's a good mommy. And I don't know if it was a conference I was at or something. And it was like, if you're playing Barbies and your kid can tell you hate playing Barbies because you just hate playing Barbies, they know like you need to do something else. So I think it's great. Like let the kids lead. And so that rule number one is let kids lead. (laughs) Rule number two is it's not play if you're not both having fun. So you just. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because that's another thing, you know, it goes in line with what we talked about the first half. We have agency and autonomy to be able to pick those activities. Mm-hmm. And um, these aren't my thoughts. So in the book, I, I kind of just present them. But this idea that we have to be our kids' best friend is another Western social condition, right? And collect- in collectivist cultures, they parent quite a bit differently, right? I mean, sometimes you hear it benign neglect and, and not in a negative context. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I accept that as a Western sort of ideal that I do want to be friends with my kids. It's an important value to me, but it certainly is something fairly unique to North America, right? Um, and so that I just want to qualify that. Yeah. That something that we're kind of living, you know, in as a social construct, but there are a lot of parents that don't feel like they have to play with their kids and find their fun outside of that. Um, You know, whether you're a believer in benign neglect, that's, um, but this work comes from uh, uh, Dr. Dunn out of university of Toronto. I think being a little bit selfless 
with regards to parenting does tend to have hedonic value with regards to being, you know, um, a more happy parent, right? So whether or not you want to engage and play with your child or not, um, at least valuing that they're happy and giving up a little bit of yourself, um, if you want to, um, mm -hmm. tends to be the folks that have, you know, that correlate with, with being a happier parent. So mm -hmm. I think the takeaway from there is, you know, oftentimes I'll try to be selfless with regards to um, how I can cater to my child. But if it means that we're going to do two separate things because they insist on playing Minecraft and I can't play Minecraft for another hour, then I'm not going to do that. Um, and then when it's time for us to co-create something fun together, then we'll do that, right? I mean, just like your child doesn't want to play with somebody that's never into what they're doing, you don't need to feel guilty about you feeling that way either, right? Yeah. You're still, if you want to be your child's friend and engage in that, then co-create that. And so many parents don't, right? They're like, so, I mean, that's another just, again, a, a subtle shift into, hey, you know, I don't want to do that. What are the options that we can do together that where we'll both enjoy ourselves? And I mean, there's always going to be something unless you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's well, I was, a great point. Um, I, I have three boys. And so my boys were just into rough and tumble play, of course. And so it was dart wars or wrestling or whatever. And mommy was a delicate flower, right? So <laughs> mommy doesn't do that. <laughs> um, but I had to find ways to connect with my yes. boys um, yes. that did not include my, uh, mm -hmm. Demise. And agony. And, exactly. Um, and so I love board games. And so mm -hmm. you want to play a board game, then mom is going to play a board game with you. You know, yeah. I'm a movie buff. You want to go to the movies? I'm going to take you to the movies or I'm going to take you bowling. You know, and so there were no circumstances, none in which I would engage in their rough and tumble play. Like that just wasn't <laughs> going to happen. Right? right. I I am a delicate flower. Um but there were enough options, right, where I could supervise and make sure they didn't kill each other during that, you know, time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but still find ways to engage with them. Yeah. But I think, yeah, that's what you're saying, Amy. I love that. That's so great for our listeners to hear that. Yeah, if there's a, okay, so I didn't like playing the herd, you know, with all their their animals and things. But I discovered somewhere along the line that I really liked Legos. And I liked, I liked building things, even with the blocks. And so I could get down in there and play the herd with them, but I would create some kind of a block structure where, oh, look, here's the tunnel they get to go through. And so I got to, you know, be apart for a little bit, or I would build some little Lego part, you know, that could be a part of the herd. So I could engage, but I had to gradually over time find ways like what you're saying, Amy. Find the ways that you can actively have fun with your kid. Yes, let them lead. But if you discover ultimately the way they lead drives you berserk, mm -hmm. it's okay to then offer ideas that you can do as well. <laughs> yeah, or switch up the activity, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. But there's a whole host of, um, yeah. And I think another thing, exploring that, like what's both enjoyable to you, you know, especially if it's um, like for my daughter and I, um, right now it's cooking, right? Like, so, you know, that ex the exploratory nature of that. So initially it was dancing, right. But then she sort of aged out of that. And so there's a longer story there, but, um, <laughs> you know, it, it would, I mean, the, the quick version is uh, it was one of those things where, uh, you know, she was, I believe she was six and, um, you know, it was really just an opportunity to get her out of the house. We wanted her to be active. 
And so she was in a tumbling class, um, but I was just sitting there watching her and it wasn't really that fun. Um, and so I realized like, well, if the main goal is just to get her active, I kind of wouldn't mind dancing again. We were talking about uh, that, um, you know, what I've done for my daughter, because she does it, you know, I don't want to play LOL dolls anymore, you know, and like, uh, so um, we took a dance class, but then ultimately, uh, she's now 10, doesn't want to dance with dad. So we pivoted to cooking. And all of that happened because we had open conversations about, you know, I don't want to, you know, play LOL dolls, but I do want to do something with you. What's something that we could really do? Um, and during the pandemic, we did watch a little bit too much TV. So she um, <laughs> got into kids baking championship. So it's like, well, you know, and I've always, I've never been a very good cook. So anyways, so we go to cooking classes and, and it's a blast. Yeah. That's, That's awesome. so fun. Yeah. yeah. So um, for those listeners where the idea of pursuing happiness and, you know, sitting in that gap doesn't resonate with them, right? That's not one of their goals. They're not struggling with that. There are lots of benefits to fun. Yes. Can you yeah. talk about some of those? Well, we've already covered some, right? So I certainly think if you're not finding any pleasure at all, then generally, even if you aren't feeling it acutely, like we tend to see that um, folks are uh, less empathetic so that they're in a service-based job, like being a clinician. So a lot of my academic research was with physicians. As soon as a physician isn't having fun and lacks empathy, then um, you know their clinical outcomes go down. That's a pretty strong correlation. Um, we know that productivity tends to go down. So if really what your ultimate goal is is you know being productive, like so, if you're so true A type, then look at the multiple of how able you know how well you're able to produce in any given hour. Like if you're really grinding yourself out and not taking anything off for renewal then maybe that's one X every hour. Right. And so if adding a little bit of fun could turn that to two X, you know, why work 50 hours a week at one X when you could work 35 and, and add some fun and that 35 times two is, you know, 70, just sort of units of output. Right. And so um, math is on my side when I make this argument. <laughs> and then I think too, you know, a lot of it is just that resistance. So if you're feeling resistant to it, like, I, I just don't know. And a lot of us in the sandwich generation, you know, which is sort of my elk, right, where I'm taking care of uh, aging parents and then also have young children, we sort of feel like it goes against that sense of duty. Like, well, how could I have fun? Um, and I think if you are experiencing that, then that's really a great opportunity to examine why you feel that friction. Why, you know, eat, okay, it doesn't have to be two hours a day, even just an hour a day. Why do you feel guilty about taking one hour to yourself a day, you know, um, you know, we call it holidays, right? Why not a holiday hour? Just, just try that on precise. Taking a holiday hour along with my lunch. <laughs> and we, yeah. no, we, we do, especially I think as moms and especially as moms of young children, if you've got any at home, that are five and under, maybe it's dads too. So Mike, I don't want to say it's not dads. There's certainly a domestic slant. I I get into that in the book. Well, and I mean, I'm a woman, so I, you know, and thinking moms, you know, (laughs) you know, so I just think that is, that's so rare. That's exactly what we do. I mean, if you've got kids under five, you are not, we're not taking an hour a day. That would be the thought process. I'm not saying it's right, 
But the thought process, I think the going standard is that would be ridiculous. That is completely selfish. It's unreasonable. But what I hear you saying is if we could do that, good heavens, if we could start out just just 15 minutes and try to build on that, that that could really, really change our life perspective on happiness without having to pursue happiness. We're just pursuing 15 minutes of fun. That's it. Let's just start experiencing joy. Exactly. (laughs) And I think, you know, to go back to your point, Amy, is the, you know, again, just challenging, like, really, you can't like, so let's say you're in the throes of, you know, young children, there isn't a a family that you trust where you could do a a date night swap. I mean, something as simple as that. So you're able to reconnect to your partner. I mean, that's a lot, you know, a lot of marital strife comes during that period because we're so giving, right? I certainly, you know, my wife and I talk about that openly, like during, you know, our first child, we could block and tackle. So, you know, those problems didn't present themselves. But our second was, um, you know, uh, a little a little bit different than our daughter. It took a lot more time. And since we weren't taking stuff off the table, you know, that was rough. And as soon as we integrated that back, you know, all of it just went back to normal. And so um, we just, again, it's so easy for us as adults to discount how important it is um, until, you know, sometimes it's too late, unfortunately. And oftentimes, if you don't do it, you know, again, a, a good reason to prioritize it is that what will happen, um, again, from that Stanford-Harvard study, is um, you'll start to engage in negative escapism, right? So instead of doing something that lights you up, like, you know, a physical activity or connecting with friends, um, you know, it might be drinking late at night. So are you, you're not only going into a sleep deficit, um, but you might habituate, you know, a bad habit, um, you know, whether it's overeating or, or, or something not good for you. Um, so again, that's why this stuff is so important. So there's even some organizational psych research on uh, workplace fun, right? Can you talk any about that? Yeah, no, I think um, so. The researcher in this area that I I, I really uh, have been enjoying lately, her name's um, Caitlin Woolley. She's out of Cornell um, and she's been experimenting with just making activities more pleasurable, right? So if you have sort of uh, an activity that you've habituated, but it's become less pleasurable or even, you know, uh, painful as it were, psychologically painful, like how can you reapproach it, um, to have more fun, right? So there's one tool where I've kind of coined it activity, activity bundling, like, you know, if it's an activity that doesn't take a lot of uh, cognitive resources, could you add music to it? Could you do it in a different environment that you enjoy? Um, you know, how can you take something that's really become drudgery and, and make it more enjoyable? And then she's also experimented with just simple reframings, right? So if it's something that you don't necessarily enjoy, so your brain is taking you to that place of like, oh, this thing is just awful. If you really enjoy the work, then focusing on, well, I'm doing this because I really enjoy what I'm doing and this is going to move the needle. Um, Just that shift, because again, pleasure is perceived, right? Can make that, okay, now I know why I'm doing it, right? And all of a sudden sort of, um, you know, the friction of that activity becomes more enjoyable. So there's a, you know, a whole host of uh, different things. And then, you know, on the well-being side, how could you just change up the activity? So like, if it's a really boring meeting, but you enjoy the company of everyone you're with, could you turn it into a walking meeting? I mean, you know, the, the kind of tactics are abound, um, but it just takes a little bit of like, 
wait, oh yeah, I do have agency and control over my situation, right? So many of us, again, because, you know, by the time I just turned 50, but, you know, the, uh, you know, between 30 and 50, it's really how we learn to habituate things. And when we, you know, start to lose that creativity, we're just like, well, this is how you do it. Like, really? I mean, we can, we always have a little bit more control, um, you know, how maybe a not activity that we have to do because we're, you know, again, we're assigned duties by our employer, but how we do them, generally, we have a lot more autonomy than we think. And if anything, that's what's really been fun about the pandemic, because I think this message was a lot harder to deliver before the pandemic. You know, like certainly, you know, having the autonomy to work from home, I'm like, well, that's just not going to work. Right. And so, you know, at a global level, we're like, wait, let's test every idea in the workplace. Because right? like what you said wasn't possible, it was absolutely possible. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. And then what I'm also hearing is the importance of collaboration in all of these environments. Um, like I know that there is some research on workplace forced fun that actually backfires, right? That, I mean, if you're forced to <laughs> participate in fun day at work, it, it doesn't necessarily bring you joy. Right. No, yeah, you're exactly forced fun is awful. Um, you know, it's unfortunate because even as, you know, an org psych academic, you learn, you know, because this will get paid for icebreakers and things of that nature. And we now know that they, you know, they actually cause a lot of strife, um, especially, you know, for folks on the big five that might be, you know, have an introverted slant. It just, um, so, you know, what I prescribe is that you really have a more inviting environment, right? So there's some fundamentals, you know, with regards to organizational hygiene. If you don't have psychological safety within your group dynamic, then don't even talk about fun, figure out first, you know, how to, you know, get that going. Um, but then like, or, um, you know, organizing in ways where, you know, similar to what we were talking about with our kids, um, you know, finding those folks that have similar interests, because we know that's, you know, one of the pieces of glue for people to actually enjoy each other's company. Um, and then, uh, you know, finding ways where you can make um, certain things that need to get done more enjoyable. So again, you know, we already used the example of, uh, you know, taking a meeting out of the, um, you know, out of the room and actually doing it on a walk so that everyone can enjoy nature. There are all of these sort of low level interventions that can make um, things still happen with regards to work productivity and make them a lot more enjoyable. But anything that's contrived, um, yeah, I mean, it just almost always is awful. And then, you know, what we know is a lot of the things that were prescribed as fun over the last couple of decades ended up really having more of a nefarious sort of underbelly, you know, things like, you know, um, ping pong tables and stuff, you know, like video games at, at the workplace, you know, it was really just to keep people there, you know, so that they, you know, keep them there longer. Um, so a lot of these things that are, are more, uh, you know, environmental tweaks have ended up backfiring. They don't have a net gain benefit. Interesting. All right. Yeah. So what have you not gotten to say to our listeners that you'd <laughs> like to say today? Um, well, I think the one like theme that we've kind of touched on, but, um, uh, you know, maybe not said explicitly is, you know, this mindfulness component, right? Like, so that word, you know, where we cast a wide, not, not necessarily mindfulness practice, but you brought it up, Amy, was this idea that happiness as a subjective construct really does have some flaws, right? It requires us to compare ourselves to each other, right? Because we look at our happenstance and like, oh, well, how am I doing, you know, against 
X individual. I mean, even our, our, our clinical instruments, you know, um, with regards to subjective well-being compare us against each other, right? And then there's also the adaptation standpoint, right? So we know through research uh, about the hedonic treadmill is that if we're not mindful of the things that really light us up, so they really come from the inside and connect us to something bigger than ourselves, either our friends or, or what we really enjoy or nature or spirituality, whatever it is, that they have a real fleeting effect, right? It's like we get that shiny nickel and then once the shine, you know, uh, luster's off, um, we're looking for that next nickel. And so when we really find things that are meaningful, fun to us through, uh, you know, this action bias and uh, a little bit more uh, forethought and being mindful of what we engage in, that's the secret sauce. Because again, you know, that's, that's an unlimited resource rather than sort of what's been prescribed to us with regards to happiness, especially in the Western world. That's, that is such a good one. Cause I think about, yeah, the, what's the shiny nickel. Oh, I'm going to watch the next episode on Netflix. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to use my two hours. You know, maybe we do, maybe we do those two hours more often than we think I'm going to use my two hours late at night, watching next Netflix, binging next Netflix, but that's not really fun. That's not really joy. So yeah, we need to, we need to make some changes. Well, unless you're a movie buff like me, who finds that to be one of my joy producing activities. Okay. That's true. <laughs> on the head, right? So that's one of the interesting things. Like oftentimes <laughs> folks will think I'm villainizing social media or television. And so there's certainly studies that show that if you overly habituate, especially television, right? That it correlates, it, it's, a, it's a low correlation, but you know, with depression, and that's probably a reverse correlation, right? When you're depressed, you don't have the energy to do things. So, um, you know, you, you need to be careful about that kind of stuff. But um, to use the, uh, you know, the examples that you both brought forth, engaging in fun viewership, especially if you're doing it with a loving partner or a group, like I used to watch Lost because I love um, philosophy. So I watched it with a group of folks and we, you know, unpack the episode and try and exchange <laughs> academic ideas. Like that was a ton of fun. So I'm not villainizing that, but you know, Terry, to your point, there are a lot of folks that are like, I've watched this show for two years and I haven't liked it for a year, you know, <laughs> all of a sudden just like, okay, let's do something else. And sometimes yeah. it's just calling their mom, you know, like, or, or connecting with an old friend that was happy to do it too. Cause they were in a similar circumstance. You know, so many of us, you know, even if it is coping, right. It maybe it's not, you know, you're not in a state where positive escapism makes sense yet. Even just allowing yourself to commiserate with a, a trusted confidant that, you know, that's better than, you know, mindlessly watching another hour that, you know, potentially de deprives you of sleep too. So yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, you know what I need to pull out again is the air dry clay. <laughs> I love The kids love it. I love it. Like that's a fun thing that we do together. And generally when we, when I pull out the air dry clay, I have a, I like a bin of it. And of course, every time I pull it out, you know, 25% of it's, we have to toss, you know, it's all <laughs> dried up, but we pull it out. We have it spread out on the table. And generally it is fun for like, you know, two or three days in the afternoons, three or four days, sometimes, you know, a long weekend. And it is so great. And we really enjoy that. And then, you know, pack it away again. But yeah, things like that. I just need to remember and hold on to things like that, that, that are fun and life-giving. 
um, together and individually. I got it. Uh, I didn't want to step on your idea, but I uh, recently found Lego. So when you mentioned that, I kind of, yes. it. it's it, unfortunately it's like 30 seconds away and I didn't want to break the episode, but I just made a huge Fender guitar with my son. Um, okay. You have to go get that. Yes. That's so so fun. I love Legos. I know we, we used to have like, well, first of all, the worst pain in the world is to step on a Lego bear. Oh, oh, I know. So my boys were total Lego buffs. In fact, Lawson's first email address was Lego law. Oh, look at this. Okay. So detailed too. Wow. That is incredible. Wait, put it closer to the camera. You can't even. Diodes and everything. That is incredible. Yeah, they did a collab with Fender. It was really neat. Wow. That is so cool. And that was a that was a kit. That was one of the sets. Yeah, yeah. Way cool. Very cool. Okay, well, I may have to grab that idea for my son that's a guitar player. That is awesome. He's 26, but so what? He, he would will, love I, it. Like I said, I'm 50 and I, I yeah. love the heck out of it. So <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Legos are awesome. better than watching uh Rick and Morty for the or playing the herd for two hours (laughs) right (laughs) or dart wars yeah (laughs) we gotta find the thing (laughs) or things you know absolutely all right (laughs) so this has been a really wonderful conversation there are so many resources and research studies that you quoted Mm -hmm. um and so listeners we'll put links to as much of that as we can um in the show notes so we want to thank our guest today, Dr. Mike Rucker. If you would like more information about his work, um, his website is michaelrucker.com. You can find him on Facebook at mike.rucker.phd and on Instagram at the wonder of fun. We'll put all his links and social media handles um, in the show notes. Um, it'll be an extra long bit um, <laughs> because you were just so science packed. It was awesome. Yeah. So thank you so much for listening today. Um, if you love our show, uh, please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd rather watch us and see Dr. Mike's really cool Fender guitar made out of Legos, we are on YouTube. <laughs> you can find us on every social media channel at The Brainy Moms. So look, until next time, we know that you're busy moms and we're busy moms. So we're out. See ya.